0: Where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body, where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves, and where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Messy Intersection. My name is Diana Rice, and I am a registered dietitian and mom of two young kids, It has been a bit and I am really happy to be back with new episodes. I have been working on some big changes during the podcast break, Um, not to the podcast itself actually, but to the other places of the internet where I hang out. The biggest change, if you follow me online, is that I am no longer using the Baby Steps Dietitian as my online brand. I have rebranded to a new platform that I am calling Anti-Diet Kids, and I have been just really touched and floored by the response I was so nervous to actually make that change. Uh, But the response really just illustrates to me how much of a need there is for anti-diet content specific to raising kids. Um, The Baby Steps Dietitian, it served me really well. And I definitely want to be clear that I still have such a place in my heart for new parents and new moms in particular. This place, The Messy Intersection, uh, it starts to exist when we enter parenthood. And most of us do that through pregnancy and raising an infant who then becomes a toddler. And none of us know what we're doing. And it's just messy. Um, So I think I will always hold space for parents early in their parenthood journeys, as you will certainly hear more about in this episode with Heather. But I think I also always knew that as my own kids got older, and as I began to work with kids of all ages in my private practice, that I would want to speak to parents of kids of all ages in all areas of my work. And I didn't know exactly what that would look like until recently. And in fact, it was actually this conversation with Heather Kaplan that you're about to hear that really sealed the deal for me on what I wanted that space to look like. Um, Heather is a person very invested in the anti-diet space herself. And uh, towards the end of the interview, you'll hear me ask her, hey, why are there not more resources tailored to parents in the anti-diet space? And um, neither of us had a super great answer for that. And uh, I think a couple days after recording this interview, I thought to myself, (laughs) okay, Uh, I guess I'll be the change. Um, And it's been going really well. So I actually recorded this interview with Heather in June of this past year, June 2021, um, not knowing that I would take a break from the podcast at the time. Uh, So I really appreciate Heather's patience with me publishing this episode, um, as well as all of you listeners uh, out there for your patience with the podcast, taking a break. Another reason uh, for such a long break was that Right around the time that I interviewed Heather, I was learning that I have ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Um, and this was only about six months ago, seven, eight months ago, and I am totally much more calm and comfortable about it now. Uh, but at the time, <laughs> I was like, oh, what the, <laughs> what the forking heck, <laughs> um, it really Turned my world upside down because um, I'm in my late 30s. And I really wish I had found out about this earlier. Uh, but ultimately, it is it is all good, because I have spent these last several months getting help and in particular, learning to run my business in a way that works for my brain and uh, all around trying to live as more of my authentic self, which is all good stuff. But One thing that people with ADHD are kind of notorious for, and I definitely suffer from this, is starting big projects and then abandoning them, um, which is pretty easy to do with a podcast. So I took some time off to think about how I could make sure To not do that. Um, This podcast is really important to me. I think that this type of medium in particular uh, is really unique and valuable in terms of sharing the stories that need to be shared in this space. And so I want the podcast to thrive and I wanted to take a little time off to make sure that I could make that happen. Um, So that's about it on that. I could probably talk more about the ADHD thing, but I will save that for a future episode. But speaking of things that seemingly come out of nowhere and turn your whole life upside down, let's talk about this episode's guest, Heather Kaplan. Before I dive into today's topic, I do want to share a content warning that we are going to be talking about pregnancy and in particular, surprise, unplanned pregnancies, which I know can be a difficult subject um, for for people who are trying to conceive. So if that is not something you are in a good space to hear about right now, uh, you might want to skip this episode. Totally cool. Mm Um, But I have actually intentionally paired this episode with the one that is going to come out two weeks from now, which is an interview with another dietitian named Brooke Miller uh, about her infertility struggles, and in particular, secondary infertility. Uh, So stay tuned for that. So today's guest is Heather Kaplan. Heather is a non-diet registered dietitian, host of the RD Real Talk podcast, and parent to three little humans Her non-diet work has been featured in various national publications, such as the Washington Post, Runner's World, and Outside Magazine. She's on Instagram at HeatherDCRD, and you can find her work and how to work with her on HeatherKaplan.com. And as always, the content on this show is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. And the views I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. Let's hear from Heather.
1: Hey, Heather. Welcome to the Messy Intersection. Hi, Diana. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad um, that you're able to do this, especially given uh, your state in life right now. (laughs) Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and maybe a little more about
1: yourself? Sure. I'm sure we'll dive into some of these things today. But currently, I'm very pregnant, like could go any day now or could be a couple weeks. You know, we don't know. And I have two kids. I have a three and a half year old and a one year old. Freshly minted one year old. We're in Colorado. I just am wrapping up work this week. I own a business like you and do some kind of media things. So I've been slowing way down on that end and just trying to somehow get ready for a third kid, whatever that means. I don't know. We'll see.
0: Yeah, I don't know either. I'm just small <laughs> too. <laughs> So, you know, I call this podcast, The Messy Intersection, because I really see a unique place in life where women become mothers, often through pregnancy. And suddenly, it's not just about taking care of yourself, which becomes like even more important, right, to take care of yourself, uh, but also to take care of the little ones. And uh, in your case, we're talking about some very little ones and about to be an additional little one. So just tell me, you know, what is your life like in the messy intersection right now?
1: I would say like what feels like the messiest thing in my mind at the moment is like logistics of actually bringing this child into the world. So we have some extra hands coming on deck this weekend. My sister is coming to stay with us for a couple of weeks, but... I've had a couple of like early labor scares, of course, in the middle of the night. And I'm like, what are we going to do? Like we, who can I call at like 12 a.m. to come stay with my two mm. kids? And so those are like, that's kind of like where my brain starts to spiral right now is just like some of the logistics and trying to think through like, really, how do we handle like three kids with two adults? <laughs> like, we're <laughs> outnumbered. What does that look like? And... I think because this is my third time, I feel a lot more prepared in other aspects. So I have been more intentional about slowing down with work and then taking time off because I have some of the luxuries to do that and the flexibilities to do that. And I want to actually take advantage of that because part of wanting to work for myself was wanting to have that flexibility. So like, why not use (laughs) it if I have it? And also trying to kind of embrace that we'll need help. The last couple of weeks have been a really (laughs) clear indicator of that as I get less agile and more exhausted. And I'm like, you know, it's just okay to ask for help. It's okay to like lean on the village and to need people in your life who can support you and to not feel like I have to do a lot of this on my own, which is a constant reminder to myself. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
0: Now, you uh, very recently relocated to Colorado. Is that right? Like what's your, your what is your support network like there?
1: Yeah, it's been a really tough move. I don't want to sugarcoat it. And I because a couple of people have reached out and been like, oh, I thought like, you know, you always seem like things are together. And I never imagined that like this move had been hard. I'm like, what am I doing wrong that I'm not being honest about this? So we moved last summer and we had a 10 week old at the time. And people are remembering last summer was sort of like a weird COVID limbo where we kind of thought things were getting a little bit better and like things were starting to open up a little bit. This was the end of July before, of course, things got much worse very quickly, probably because we opened things up. So we got out here and the move had been planned for a long time, obviously not knowing that we would be in a pandemic. So we got out here and Thankfully, we know a small handful of people that we knew beforehand and then actually another family who's here from D.C. like we are. And they have kids. So that has been sort of like our only <laughs> community since we've gotten here. It's just really hard to meet people. It's hard to explore a city when a lot of it's closed or doesn't feel safe. And then what we were able to do for a while, which was things we love to do, like hiking and being outside a lot, became increasingly harder for me to do as I got pregnant again. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, physically I'm hindered a little bit by that. I can't really like carry my. 10 month old on a hike when I'm seven months pregnant. So a lot of the stuff that we did love to do that was kind of like helping us feel settled and adjusted felt inaccessible after a while. In addition to the fact that it then started snowing for many, many months on end. (laughs) So we were stuck inside and... Yeah, it's been a tough adjustment for sure.
0: I'm I'm right there with you on that. We moved from New York to St. Louis when my second kid was 3 weeks old, uh, which was also a, a planned move and not in a pandemic. Uh, but <laughs> but I'm right there with you in terms of, you know, finding your support network. And uh, th- honestly, that's one of many reasons behind this podcast is I really don't think that women, whether or not they have to move with an infant, are getting enough uh, support and recognition for just how very challenging it is to be powering through with a baby that young and especially with an older one. So you mentioned that you run a business. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it is that you do and you know, how you've navigated doing that and also being a mom because I know I know a lot of moms are in that position, whether or not you run a business, you may be working from home now, which sometimes feels like you're a solopreneur. So yeah, Yeah. tell us about that.
1: Yeah, that was also a really tough adjustment when we got here because we had a great childcare situation pre COVID. Our first was in a nanny share, which I loved. It was actually a more affordable option for us. Than daycare in our area, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. which is wild. So he, he's always been with one other kid. That ended during COVID. We weren't sure what was safe and what wasn't, et cetera. Then we moved and running a business while also having a very small baby and a toddler who wasn't old enough for preschools here yet, which he would have been in Arlington. And not knowing The childcare situation out here, like I, you know, in Arlington, I knew all the places to go to like, look for recommendations or find someone. And here it was like starting from square one. And my husband was suddenly back at work after being home for a while And I'm in a place I don't know. (laughs) and I'm like sort of trying to work a little bit. So my job as I have set it up is I do one on one nutrition counseling. I work mostly with athletes and disordered eating. And then I also have a podcast and I do some continuing education events for fellow dietitians. So I kind of eased back into all of that. I hired an associate last January, so a year and a half ago, to help me with the client side of things, which allowed me to kind of keep that side of the business open, but then focus on other stuff that I could do kind of on more flexible hours when we got here. And our piecemeal childcare situation for a while was like a few college babysitters who were amazing. And like, we still have them come over from time to time. And then eventually we found our nanny who has been wonderful. And then eventually Casey got into preschool and (laughs) eventually things sort of lined up, but it was really tough. I mean, I, I have set a boundary over the years of not working during nap time if I'm like the provider for the day. Like if I'm parenting my kids and I don't have help, I have a rule that I don't work during nap time, which is easy and tempting to do. And sometimes that's your only option. So I understand why people do it. But if I can avoid it, I try to do that. And then just like really being as efficient as I can when I have childcare, (laughs) which is also kind of hard because sometimes you're like, well, this is the one time I could, you know, go to the store without chasing two toddlers around or like make an appointment or whatever. So Yeah, there's been definitely some adjustments on that side as well yeah I'm right there with you on that i um, when my kids stayed
0: home in the early part of the pandemic i for a while i was like why why am i not focusing on work like they they watch TV they take naps like what you know why am i not able to do this and I, th- I think it's just what you said like i just had to draw a hard line of scaling back on my work but I recognize what a privilege that is like i imagine moms listening right now if they were on staff somewhere did not have that advantage and I mean i don't I don't have to tell anyone um, how unfair the pandemic has been to women, especially moms.
1: But um. totally, totally. Yeah. And I even felt that as someone who, you know, like if you have a business, if you're not working, you're not getting paid. (laughs) So and also if you're an employee, if you're not working, then you might be at risk of losing your job. And yeah, when we got here and Mike went back to work and it was sort of like that was a given because we're here for his job. It was sort of like, where does that leave me? And how do we figure that out? Um, Yeah, definitely.
0: And way too often that dilemma falls on the mom just because of the way that uh, so many things are structured. That's definitely the situation that I've been in. My husband was working full time from home from day one of the pandemic and uh, it's not a criticism of him, like was not basically able to lift the finger to help out with the kids because of the nature of his job. And But I digress. Um, so, um, so if anyone listening uh, has done the math, Heather mentioned that she has a newly minted one-year-old and she is about to deliver a newborn baby. So uh, Heather, tell us about
1: your situation with currently
0: being pregnant.
1: Yeah. Uh, um, we might get into this part of it as well. But I, I always sort of joke like no one is more surprised than me that we're in this situation. Um, I found out I was pregnant in October. And our second was born in May. So I was nursing him. And my period came back about three and a half months in which I was sort of like, Why (laughs) that's annoying. (laughs) But on other levels, it's sort of and that happened with my first as well. I think I was about four and a half months with him. But you know, on some level it's like, okay, well, this actually like helps a little bit with kind of knowing what's going on in terms of ovulation, you would think. And then also I enjoy running and I know that if I'm not getting a, a cycle because I've been in that space before for different reasons. Injury risk is higher due to those kind of hormonal shifts. And so I had just been easing back into running. And I thought, well, like, this is sort of frustrating, because it's nice to have some time off from that. But for, you know, other health reasons, it can kind of be a good thing. So that happened at the end of August. And by the end of September, I was starting to feel like dizzy and really fatigued. Anytime I went for what were at the time, very short runs, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, maybe I would leave and just like instantly feel really, really exhausted. And there was one day where I think I ran for like four minutes and was like, I feel like I'm going to face plant on the sidewalk. I just need to turn around and I need to go home. So obviously scaled back on that and was sort of like, man, what is going on? Gave it a week or two, figured like, I must just be really tired. We have a four month old who's going through a sleep regression (laughs) and I'm nursing him and I'm trying to work and we're adjusting to this new life. So like, maybe it's all just too much and I need to just scale back. And I did have this thought in the back of my head, like, I wonder if I'm pregnant. And So I had my cycle at the end of August and then was expecting it at the end of September. And I use an app and I track things and wasn't lining up. So a week or two into October, I was sort of like, okay, well, maybe it's just because I'm nursing and so things are a little off which is true, and (laughs) I decided to order some pregnancy tests off of Amazon because I wasn't in any rush to find out. I certainly could have gone to Target or CVS or whatever, and I didn't want to do that. Took a test on a Friday night at the end of a week of hosting a virtual conference, which I sort of like wanted to live in ignorance during the conference. I was like, I just need to focus on the conference. I just got to host the conference. Took a test on a Friday night, really just thinking like I need to rule this out so I can figure out what else is going on. And, you know, I've been in this space twice before. Those lines showed up very quickly (laughs) and very dark. (laughs) And I was like, oh, we're not even like... Early, early, pro- like this is <laughs> established. Okay. Okay. Great. It was really confusing. I mean, if I'm to be very, very candid, like I sat on the bathroom floor for a good 10 or 15 minutes and just tried to think, like, how is this real? At the time, by that point, we had a five month old and we had just put the, our kids to bed. And I sort of was like, how do I even go downstairs? Like, how do I go? I'm not someone who has ever like held that information and thought of like a fun way to tell my partner like I just go downstairs and I'm like I'm pregnant here's the test. So I did that and we both just like sat on the couch and probably for about an hour just tried to process that information because we weren't expecting it and we weren't ready for it and it just felt really really it felt surreal. It was like this can't this can't be real. This cannot be real. But it is. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> the, that feeling of this can't be real. That's
0: what, how we all felt about COVID, right? As it started yeah. <laughs> and it just it feeling really surreal. And now on top of COVID, you know, you found yourself in this situation as I'm sure that other women have, <laughs> right? This is right. not a, an extremely rare occurrence. Right. How I'm really curious just with, I imagine a, a person with a toddler and a newborn. I mean, I've been there. Your body is not your own, right? You're, especially when you're breastfeeding, yeah. which you, yeah. you mentioned that you were. Whether or not you intended to have a third kid at some point, like there, I think almost any woman feels a little relief as you approach, you know, certainly when the baby comes out and then maybe as you think about, you know, how much longer you'll be breastfeeding and at what point, you know, are you going to just be a hundred percent in charge of your own body? Where were you at with, with all of that?
1: Yeah, I started doing some math pretty quickly in my head because you're, I mean, my brain was just spiraling, like trying to make sense of this. Because again, like if I had calculated my cycle correctly, like we wouldn't be here. And I think my ovulation must have been delayed and blah, blah, blah. And I started thinking, oh my God, like first I'm thinking we're having another COVID baby like I knew by October, like this is not going anywhere fast. We're having another COVID baby. That's crazy. And if anyone has had a baby in the past year, like it's not anything. And I have a comparison, right? I have a non COVID baby and I have a COVID baby. So like, that was the first thing I thought about was just like, Oh my God, I have to do this in the pandemic again. We already don't have enough support. Like, how are we going to do this? And then I thought, I started doing the math of like, by the time this kid is born, I knew they would probably be 12 or 13 months apart. They'll be about 13 months apart. I will have been pregnant and or nursing for basically four out of the last five years, with the exception of like 10 months between when I stopped nursing our oldest and I got pregnant with our second. And that felt really weird too, because I'm like, that's like all of my early 30s. Like they're just, they've been now attributed to like growing and sustaining human life. I think because I wasn't yet in a space where I had a lot of, like, I didn't feel like I had a lot of body autonomy. It was sort of like, okay, I guess we're just rolling right into this next one. Um, whereas with my first, like I, I did have a break and then you kind of have that mental space to say like, okay, I'm ready to put my body through this again or to, to embrace this experience again. And that, yeah, it all felt really overwhelming, especially being, you know, five months postpartum and nursing was sort of like, I'm already still tethered to this one being. (laughs) It's like, how am I going to be trying to nurse him and like being pregnant, which I ended up weaning him because I didn't, my supply just totally tanked. And yeah, like basically I just did a lot of math of like, okay, so for basically four out of five years, like my body is just growing humans and keeping them alive somehow.
0: Yeah, the things we go through. I was curious about whether the
1: pregnancy impacted your breastfeeding relationship with your middle
0: child. Did you
1: have any strong feelings about that? Oh, I did. Yeah, I was really sad. And it still sort of makes me sad when I think about it. I part of how I knew I was pregnant too, was that my supply started going down. And at first I thought, Oh, that's actually, so if your cycle comes back, it's a little normal to have dips in your milk during the week that you bleed. So I had done a lot of research because I could tell that my milk was going down and I'm like, I'm doing all the same things I did with Casey. Like we didn't have any issues with Casey. What's going on? And the only thing I noticed with Casey, because my cycle also came back early, was that when I was running, I was having pelvic floor issues during my period week. And so I sort of was like, okay, well, I will anticipate that. But I noticed my supply go down. I met, met with a lactation consultant twice, tried everything she was telling me the worst of which was a pumping power hour. Have you heard of this? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So I was doing that every night for about two weeks and saw zero difference in my supply and actually noticed that during that power hour, my supply was going down over the course of the two weeks. And I was just like, what is happening? Like, this is so strange. Maybe, you know, we'll just have to start supplementing and that's fine. Like I can embrace that. And then found out I was pregnant and I was like, oh, oh, okay. And it went pretty quickly from there, which has been true for me now both times. Like as soon as I started weaning, it was like my body just like shut things off. It wasn't like, like I haven't had the experience where I could just maintain like a one feet a day nursing relationship if I wanted to. It's like once we're done, we've been done. That's just mm-hmm. how my body responds. So I weaned him. I think the last time I nursed him was probably like mid November. So I maybe was eight or 10 weeks. And I've heard people say that they've been able to nurse like partially through pregnancy. And I'm like, all bodies are amazing and different. And they do different things. That was certainly not my experience. So we started supplementing right away because I'm like, Oh, that's probably why he's screaming in the middle of the night. And that's probably why he's fussy in the middle of the day. (laughs) Like he's just not getting enough. So it made a lot of things make sense. And I had to sort of grieve this idea that we're done and i didn't really anticipate that or plan for it and then there's definitely a feeling of guilt of like you know i i sort of feel like i took that from him like he didn't get to have it because of the situation that we're in I definitely feel that so it yeah. was it was a roller coaster of emotion <laughs> Is there a flip side
0: or a silver lining of um, just being able to hand off the the feeding element to other
1: support people? A hundred (laughs) percent. Yes. So we had brought our nanny on around the same time and that I was weaning him. And so it made it easier for me to kind of have a more structured work day for the first time in quite a few months. And he also started sleeping a lot better, which you know, again, like he wasn't getting enough, so it made sense that he wasn't sleeping great. And also, he was very young, so I hadn't even like been thinking too much into it. But by six months, he was sleeping through the night, no problem. And I think part of that was just you know we had a little bit more control over when he ate and how much he was eating. And I know plenty of breastfed babies who sleep through the months, sleep through the night. So it's not necessarily like this is the equation, but that's just kind of how it ended up for us, which, you know, I was fully prepared for a year of not getting great sleep. So it would have been fine either way. But being pregnant in that first trimester and getting him kind of like longer and longer chunks, that made a big difference. Yeah, (laughs) that was helpful for both of us. Yeah. That's great. So
0: I imagine that for any woman listening right now, who would love to be pregnant, Right now, it is a little bit hard to maybe a lot of bit hard to hear a story like this. So on the one hand, I yeah. want to hold space for how overwhelming this is for women who are in similar situations to you, but also for women who are very frustrated that they are not pregnant and they want to be. What is your take on that, all that, especially as the person who is pregnant?
1: Yes, I think about that a lot. And I thought about it very much as I was deciding kind of how to approach this. And from a social media standpoint, because as you know, like I do share quite a bit of my life on social media, and I always have. And I feel like that helps me connect to other people. And I want to be honest about experiences. And so like part of me wanted to normalize this feeling of overwhelm and confusion and sort of like this unsettling feeling of like, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant because I hadn't felt that before. Like we had planned for our first two and, you know, when I found out I was delighted and surprised and also like, cool, we like, this is what we wanted, you know? So the the surprise feeling was new for me, but I also recognize I have, you know, many people in my life who have been in that space where they want to be pregnant and they're not. And so it does sort of feel like this conflict of like, how do I talk about this honestly to help normalize folks who feel unsettled and surprised and sort of like confused <laughs> and also honor that those experiences of People who really struggle and would love to have a surprise pregnancy, or would um, much rather be in my boat than theirs, or something like that. I don't know. You know, I can't speak for how everyone feels, obviously, but um, tried to think of a lot of different scenarios in my head to be sensitive to that. And I also can put myself in that space to some extent. I had hypothalamic amenorrhea for many years in my early twenties, and always. I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking that that meant I wouldn't be able to have kids. Like I pretty much had tried to accept that fact, even though no one said that to me. And I know much more about that condition now and, Was able to reverse it, obviously, because I now have three Mm -hmm. kids. But I do remember like being in that space of thinking, like really grieving even far before I was ready to have kids, like, what if I can never get pregnant or what if this is never my reality? Um, Which is why I say, like, no one is more surprised than me that I'm in this boat where like we somehow have like a surprise third kid. So I think, yeah, I guess, you know, when I think about it, I again want to normalize like what I'm experiencing because I think typically what we see is just people who are super excited and like everything's great you know people called me the next day after i told them and were like congrats and i was like no not right now <laughs> like i'm i just like wasn't ready for that sentiment even though it's it's of course well intentioned and my heart is always like you know partially in that space of knowing that there are so many parents out there who have a much harder time and who struggle with this and who probably do have a tough time like seeing a story like this.
0: Yeah, definitely. So
1: um,
0: thinking about how uh, you share a lot of your life on social media and you <laughs> mentioned your hypothalamic amenorrhea, can you tell us more about that that part of your life and, and how it informs um, both the work you do now and how you are raising your kids?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I lost my period after, let's see, I was probably about 17 and it was right around the time that I was starting to restrict my food intake and exercise a little more and trying to kind of manipulate my body to feel more confident and comfortable and adjust to being a teenager and adjust to being, I was going off to college. Like it all makes sense in hindsight, right? You see like big life transitions and then coping mechanisms and coping skills that develop. And that was also when I decided to study nutrition, unsurprisingly. So just became really obsessed with kind of healthy eating and movement and calories and tracking and all of the above. And the results of that were part of the result of that aside from mental effects was that I lost my period and I had had, I think I went through puberty at about 13, 14. So it'd been a couple of years and didn't get a normal cycle back until I was 24, um, almost 25. So spent about six or seven years in that space. Initially, just a little confused. I didn't think much of it. My brain was young and focused on other things. And then I think as the years went on, I was sort of like, this is probably not good. And it's probably a sign that I should be listening to from my body. And my body's probably trying to tell me something, but I don't know what that is. And I don't know how to fix it. And I just really didn't understand what was going on. And unfortunately in my interactions with healthcare providers during that window of time, no one else understood what was going on and no one really dug into it. Like it was not a concern to any of the providers that I met with at the time. Maybe because I was young-ish, but regardless, it should be a red flag. <laughs> like It really should be a red flag. So that, is, that has informed much of my work since then. So I went on and on and I actually started working for a lab in college where the principal investigator, the researcher was studying amenorrhea, hypothalamic amenorrhea in young women. That was not a coincidence. I saw an ad for the study and they were looking for participants, which I very much qualified as a participant. But instead of putting myself in that position, I said, hey, I'm looking for a job. Could I come work in this lab and basically was trying to absorb the information that they were learning and sharing and studying. And that's kind of how I learned for myself what was going on. So still took a couple of years for that to reverse, mostly eating more, letting go of food rules, addressing and acknowledging like what disordered eating patterns I was having and what that meant and how to reconcile that with my nutrition education (laughs) and dietetics and then trying to like be a dietitian without letting all of that trigger me and without letting it like seep back in, which is no small task. So yeah, around 24, 25, my cycle just kind of showed up one day and I was like, okay, okay, cool. Like we did it, you know, and it's been regular ever since, but I still, um, you know, my husband and I got married. I was I think 28. And I remember having a conversation with him. Like, I'm not sure if I can have kids. I don't know. Like I get regular cycles and I think things are okay. And otherwise I've been, you know, quote unquote healthy for a few years, but I just don't know. And we won't know until we try. So that has, yeah, that has started to inform my work. I mean, that's like primarily the population that I work with. And I try to raise awareness of it because for many of my clients, like even the words hypothalamic amenorrhea, they've never heard before, or if they have heard it because of the research they're doing for themselves, no one in their life knows what it means or has, you know, they feel like they can't talk to anybody about it. And so it's like building those spaces for people who are experiencing that, but also, Trying to help people, including practitioners, better understand it so that it's not just kind of brushed aside for so long. Do you have any hunches or
0: suspicions as to why you were not diagnosed with anorexia? Given that your period was missing for so long and you had lost a lot of weight.
1: Yeah. No, I fit all the diagnosis, the diagnostic criteria, which I didn't understand. I actually didn't know that even for a few years, even though we have like what our one class on eating disorders in college. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I strongly identified with orthorexia for a long time, like in hindsight, trying to understand my experiences. Orthorexia, I would say, is kind of primarily what I experienced, but I do in, like in the, the very early years of that experience, for me, I did meet diagnostic criteria for anorexia. And I th- the only thing I can think of as to why that was not diagnosed is a lack of awareness and education in healthcare. I didn't meet with a dietitian, So if I had, that maybe would have come up. But between nurse practitioners and physicians, there's a pretty big knowledge gap.
0: Yeah. And so that's interesting about orthorexia and you you
1: identifying with orthorexia. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that term means? Orthorexia is technically defined as an obsession with healthy eating and health itself. So um, not only obsessing over like food and nutrients and energy intake and the balance of your diet and eating the right things and the best things, et cetera, but also doing so in a in an obsessive pursuit of health. The irony often being that in that pursuit of health, our health is negatively Impacted, for example, uh, maybe in a young female losing a menstrual cycle and like not having the energy or the nutrients to sustain your menstrual cycle, right? Yeah. That's like pretty. That's a big red flag.
0: Yeah, and so what's interesting about orthorexia is that it is not officially considered a, a disease as per the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Do you think that that leads right. to it being even? Lesser known, more ignored, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, I think that folks in the eating disorder space are really aware of it. I think some dietitians are relatively well aware of what it is, kind of how to screen for it. But yeah, it's not something we can diagnose, which means there aren't objective criteria for saying this person does or does not experience orthorexia. And I often think that, especially in the case of the eating disorder space, it sort of tends to be a stage through which eating disorders develop or morph right so we have the diagnosis of anorexia or the diagnosis of arfid or the diagnosis of bulimia and through treatment someone might kind of transition into a space where they don't make they don't meet that eating disorder diagnostic criteria anymore but they've become really obsessed with healthy eating and healthism. And so therefore they kind of are in more of this orthorexic space as part of their like transition into real life or out of treatment. So I think we see it a lot in sort of like stages <laughs> of eating disorder treatment. But unfortunately, what I think still goes like largely unacknowledged is how normalized those behaviors and tendencies are in our culture at large.
0: Yeah, so what I'm thinking about right now is how easily an orthorexic mentality can uh, show up when we think about feeding our kids in terms mm-hmm. of we would never restrict our kids. We don't typically see kids purging, but with the adults being the ones bringing the food into the homes and serving the kids and that's very much part of their job it we can really easily let any orthorexic tendencies we have of our own filter into what we are feeding our kids do you do you see this in
1: your clients your friends that kind of thing have you experienced it yourself <laughs> all of the above all of the above yeah i think it was a little shocking to me when i started feeding my first how quickly some of that popped back up because I'm like, I am years out of this. I'm an intuitive eating dietician. I am non-diet, blah, blah, blah. And then you start feeding your kids and you realize, I think it's a combination, at least for me, I will say it's a combination of my own childhood feeding experiences and having that as like really the only basis of like how to feed a kid because it should seem like in some ways, it's like, oh, this this has got to be pretty easy. And then you don't know how your kid's going to respond. So it's just not easy. And they change and their preferences change and their abilities to feed themselves change. So I think, you know, drawing upon our own experiences and like going back to our own childhood can pop up, or at least it did for me. And then recognizing like what you get concerned about, you know, like, oh, is that too much of that? Or should I offer this? Or am I allowed to give him this or not allowed to, but like, is it the right idea to give him this bar instead of like making something or, you know, (laughs) is it okay for him to have the frozen waffle instead of like a pancake that I make from like bananas and whole wheat flour or whatever? I did notice some of that stuff popping up. And it was just for me, sort of an observational experiment of like, oh, it's interesting. Interesting that I'm sort of questioning that or it's interesting that like that's that feels like conflicting for me whether or not like that food is okay for him and so it was kind of a constant reminder to just like relax if he's eating things and he's eating a variety of things like we're probably okay and also it's a very humbling experience to feed kids <laughs> it was for me like I kept thinking, you know, I know all of these things about intuitive eating and I've done some reading on intuitive eating for kids. So this should be like pretty easy. And then again, like they change their preferences, change their routines, change their taste buds, change and it's like all of it can kind of throw you for a loop.
0: Yeah. So what kind of stuff would come up for you, either if he was eating the frozen waffle or, you know, if he had a day where, you know, he ate more
1: candy than regular food or like what did anything come up for you in those situations? Yeah, I think the first thing that came up was how hard it is to normalize candy, desserts, fun foods, even though for me, they're very normalized. But for kids, I think it can be really easy to like get into the space of like, if you do this, then you can have that. Or if you eat this, then you can have that. And even like, I would say it and be like, oh, I don't mean that. No, 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 no. Let me like walk that back a little bit. Like I did not mean to say that. Like it sort of would like come out as like a learned behavior, even though this is the first time I'm feeding a kid, Mm -hmm. you know? And so kind of learning how to like normalize those foods so that they like, Like I work with my clients on, like all (laughs) foods are equal. We can be neutral. We can be flexible. Um, So normalizing that. And then you kind of realize you're up against culture too, right? So he goes to preschool and this is a fun, special thing, or this is a birthday treat, Mm. or this is a lunch dessert or whatever, So, you're up against like cultural norms, and then you're up against like your learned behaviors and what your experiences were as Mm -hmm. a kid. And then I also found myself, at least initially, and I think a lot less about this now that I have two kids and I've been through the process, but I would get a little worried of like, oh, he's eating too much of this thing and not enough of this other thing. Maybe I'm not giving it to him often enough. Maybe we haven't worked through exposures, like just like trying to like rationalize and find reason for everything when like sometimes there's just not a reason or at least not one that we're going to (laughs) know. Right. And like trying to be okay with that.
0: Yeah. I think that there's actually, it, it gets tricky even when you are informed or maybe even especially when you are informed about things like the division of responsibility for kids and you're practicing intuitive eating as an adult and you're following an Instagram account that's showing you how to get your kids to start to like kale if you just do them through these exposures and then we get the idea that if we just do all this, then they will be a perfectly healthy eater and that right. that maybe they won't even have a, a preference for sweets because we've neutralized sweets. And that's certainly right. what I believed in in the start of feeding my older daughter. And like it just hit me one day that, you know, that's actually not the goal. <laughs> the goal right. isn't to do everything right according to whether it's a dietitian on Instagram or, or me <laughs> with this podcast and teaching people about the division of responsibility, the goal is not that we'll put all those things in place and suddenly have a perfect eater. The goal is that we have empowered our kids to have a healthy relationship with food. How does that show up for you?
1: Oh, that's 100% it. And that's also it when you're doing client work, right? Mm -hmm. Like I had to think of like, for me working with a client who is unlearning dieting rules and wants to embrace intuitive eating and wants to like let go of these orthorexic tendencies the goal is not that they only want salads and they mm. stop craving the oreos that's never the goal <laughs> the goal is that we embrace all of it and we're neutral about all of it and so yeah 100% i i was definitely entering that first feeding experience under the operation or under the assumption that if i if I do the division of responsibility, right. And if we give him all these different foods and we expose him to different things and we normalize treats, like he won't want them as much. They won't seem as special, but like at the end of the day, those taste a certain way to kids and to us. Right. So like, of course he's going to want those things. And it was more of a practice of like turning the lens around and being like, you have to be okay with that. Yeah. Not, not him. You have to be okay with it. Yeah. And that's hard. It's <laughs> hard to do. That's definitely hard
0: for for certainly for someone in eating disorder recovery as many of my clients are as well. But even like, you know, I've always had a relatively healthy relationship with food myself and I have those conversations with myself. So that that is just yeah. the pressure that we get from culture in terms of, you know, how to raise a healthy eater is, you know, do all these things and then but the thing is that that is a healthy eater. Like a kid right. <laughs> who right. really likes Oreos and eats however many Oreos you give them and then you know also turns around and eats plenty of other stuff because you've neutralized those foods too is a healthy eater. That is the goal. But that's not like a convenient little thing that we can like package up and and right. <laughs> talk about. So
1: Right. It's like catching yourself when you don't care that they asked for another bunch of strawberries, but you do find yourself hesitating that they asked for more Oreos. It's like yeah, Okay. Yeah. It's, it's all neutral. It's all neutral. It's okay.
0: Whereas if we were talking to an adult who came into a client session saying, you know what, I wanted more Oreos and I had some, we would celebrate that as a win. Yeah.
1: Really like, great. Yeah. That's awesome.
0: Although I do have to put in a little disclaimer here because I, I know that people can uh, misunderstand a bit about what intuitive eating means as it applies to kids. We are not necessarily always going to give them Oreos when they ask, you know, the, the adult is deciding what. It's great if you do make space for that plenty of times, but there will also be times when either they, they ask for something, you know, sugary or, you know, chips or something like that. And you say, nope, we're not having that right now. Uh, we're having something else.
1: Yeah, I, so the way that I say it, and I try to describe this to like other people who might take care of my kids mm-hmm. for a day or two or a meal is if we offer it, it's fair game. Right, so if we're getting dinner ready and I have put um, his plate together, and we've already said, I'll I'll usually say, do you want like chocolate chips or a cookie, or do you want a cookie or a little bit of ice cream, or do you want like whatever the options are? You know, I usually give him two choices, and his dessert is like part of his dinner. And if he says, well, I want this, and I'll say, that's not on the menu tonight sorry you know because that's the easiest way for me to realize why I'm not offering it it's Mm -hmm. not it's like I we're not this is not like a fully extensive everything we have in the pantry menu you have two choices (laughs) you can choose from this or this Uh, and so now he has started asking we'll be getting dinner ready and he's like "Um, is such and such on the menu tonight (laughs) (laughs) I'm like yeah tonight it is yes
0: yeah, that's really great for kids to learn. And I kind of had an epiphany around that because I did the exact same thing with, you know, the the treat foods, quote unquote treat foods. But um, as it happens, one of my kids is just obsessed with asparagus and was really asking if we would be having asparagus for dinner. And I actually had some in the fridge, but it wasn't on to make this right now. Yeah. And we basically went through the exact same thing of that's not on the menu, and she got upset and
1: there were tears. And I was like, I think this is good. I yeah. Well, <laughs> so. see that that's the thing is like, if you are going to do it with one type of food, you have to be doing it with every type of mm-hmm. food. So like the same way that tonight, the ice cream isn't on the menu, but here are your other two options. Like I'm also not serving you fruit salad. Mm-hmm. Like we're doing a veggie and we're doing whatever, like Fruits not on your dinner plate tonight, you know, <laughs> like yeah. it just, I've, it is a practice in like being the same about everything as opposed to like just treating the quote unquote special foods or treat foods that way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But and that, that it's, is food it's ne- a work. It's food neutrality, right? You know, we are right, trying right. to, you know, we, we can talk all day long about wanting to neutralize foods and but to execute that would be, you know, basically, you know, what we're talking about here. And I, I know a lot of parents yeah. run into the situation where if the kids having cake or a donut or whatever and the kid doesn't finish it, they're like, Oh, they're just such natural, intuitive eaters. Look how lit. and it's so great that they didn't finish the treat food. But we mm-hmm. have to apply that mentality to whatever the food on the plate is. Because when we really think about why, if we can, if we can, you know, there are times that there are other barriers, why a kid would have a low intake, but for the most part, if everything else is in place, if they choose not to eat, whatever it is, it is because they are honoring their appetite and we don't know what their little tummies, what goes, I honestly, I do not know what goes
1: on in there. It is a real mystery. (laughs) That is for sure. Yeah. We'll never know. So, um you know, in talking as you did about uh,
0: you know the clients you work with in your business, you didn't dive too much into the fact that you, as a provider, are very much aligned with the health at every size approach, and you run a continuing education organization that is all about the health at every size approach. So here's my question. Mm-hmm. You and I, as moms of young kids struggle with this. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to say that there aren't some resources. There's a handful of resources. I try to be one of those resources. But in yes. terms of the, the health at every size conversation at large, my experience has been that this is it's not entirely ignored, but it's not a big part of the conversation. What's going on here? What, what in, in your interpretation?
1: So I don't know if I have a great answer to this, but I some reflections and kind of thoughts that pop up for me initially are that I can think of a lot of providers that I've worked with in this space who don't have kids. So I think part of it is lived experience and like where we're coming at this Information from. Like, unfortunately, you know, prior to having kids, I didn't think a whole lot about how intuitive eating applied to kids. <laughs> so yeah. I think part of it is the lived experience of the providers in the spaces, and especially those who have big platforms and are taking up a lot of volume in some of those conversations, so to speak. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is also that I think that many providers work with adults in a variety of ways, but to work with kids is like such a specialized part of the profession, right? Like even within eating disorders, you have a lot of practitioners who work with eating disorders, but don't work with adolescents or don't work with young kids. It feels like a very niche population to work with. Whereas like adults can willingly come to a provider and can willingly enter these spaces and be part of these conversations. So when you go into private practice, I think like if we looked at a percentage of folks who work with adults versus kids, my guess would be the kids' percentage is really low. So that's, that, that's what comes to mind for me is sort of a combination of all those factors. And additionally, I think if we looked at probably the research that exists right now in weight-inclusive care and intuitive eating or non-diet practices as interventions for health outcomes, my guess would be like 99% of it is on adults. And we don't have that data for kids yet. All of that being said, professionally across the the healthcare spectrum, it is, I think, widely known that it's contraindicated to put a kid on a diet or to have kids, quote unquote, lose weight during developmental stages, and yet, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like weight normative care just can't quit, and and yet there is still rampant anti-fat bias across pediatrics. I mean, we've seen, like in the Wind Facebook group, we've seen posts as young as like I work in a NICU, and they're concerned that this baby has gained too much weight, like this newborn baby that they're in the 99th percentile, which is as problematic as saying you know they have this quote unquote high BMI. As if that's like the one tool that we should ever turn to, to decide whether or not a body is okay. So it's, it's definitely, there's a huge, huge gap in knowledge as practitioners. I think probably research lived experience for the folks who do have kind of strong platforms and voices in that space, or maybe they've chosen not to involve (laughs) kids. I don't know. And then also just, again, this being like quite a specialized practice to work in pediatrics. I think that probably has something to do with it as well. I remember thinking when we were first starting to feed Casey and he was first starting to show preferences for certain things. And I was like, oh, he has opinions now. Like he's a toddler and he has opinions about what we feed him because he was a very like quote unquote adventurous or flexible eater up until a certain point. And then he just wasn't, you know, they change. And I remember thinking like telling myself, giving compassion to myself and saying, you are not a pediatric dietitian. You don't have to be the expert at this. Like other people have this figured out, (laughs) you know, just because I am a dietitian doesn't make me a pediatric dietitian, you know? So I think it's, I think part of it too is just that kind of specialized practice being a smaller part of our like greater profession. What are your thoughts? Here
0: (laughs) Well, I might be an outlier because it has always felt more natural to me to work with kids than to work with adults. And I I really had to push myself into working with adults. And the reason for that is not that kids are easier to work with. But when you are working with a kid, you are actually working with an adult. Right? I'm not sitting and telling a five year old how to do the division of responsibility. But you get you get to instruct the adult on exactly what to do in terms of like, this is, this is the best practice, do it this way. You know, if this situation comes up, this is what I would recommend to do versus when I am working with an adult, I don't dictate <laughs> what <laughs> to do. And, and I should say, you know, when I'm working with a parent, I am still working within, you know, whatever the habits are that are most important to their family, their cultural preferences and stuff like that. I'm not saying you need to give your kid one serving of beans and one serving of whole grains and like whatever, you know, it's, But I can still I can still say, hey, what if you did this? You know, we have a lot of research that supports doing this. But with the adult, I have to dig into their motivation of, you know, where is this coming from? Which now I've gotten a lot better at and because of how how much they intersect, because I find that when adults are not able to execute my recommendations for feeding kids, it's not because they don't believe me it's because there's something in their own relationship with food that stops them from being able to do that. And then I say, well, I don't think your kid is the client. (laughs) I think you are the client. But for for me, that's, it's always felt more natural to work with kids, but I recognize like you're saying that most providers don't, um, you know, just don't have that perspective, but I I don't think it's exclusively an issue about providers because really we want any parent, in the same way that uh, you know, it's pretty well recognized that we don't do spanking anymore, right? Like, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are. You would think, yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, ugh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure there are some families that still do it, but like, we have literature that says we do not have positive outcomes, um, and right. you know, I, I think doctors are talking about it and things like that. So, I would like to see a culture shift, and I think we're seeing it to a degree. I just think it's baby steps to, you know, parents, regardless of I'm certainly not putting kids on diets, but we can't be talking about, oh, no more cookies for you, you're going to get a belly or something. But I don't know, maybe it's just a tide shift. And, you know, as we see uh, everything changing with adults, hopefully
1: it will trickle down to kids. Yeah. Um, I don't know, it's a big question mark. I think I agree. I think it's sort of like an upstream downstream issue, right? Because the kids are getting what the adult is dealing with you know so if the adult guardian parent caretaker etc or all of the above the teacher the provider like kids are getting exposed to all of that you know i mean you've talked about this on a show like mm-hmm. diet culture showing up in preschool like schools who don't allow sugar who don't allow this who you know no birthday treats no this no that they have quote unquote healthy eating worksheets to do at the age of 5 <laughs> like so yeah i think It comes from so many different angles, but then, yeah, bringing it back into this space of health at every size conversations, I think maybe it is sort of just that we're still focused pretty high upstream (laughs) and we're we're trying to eventually get downstream with it. Yeah,
0: And I don't want to minimize at all the types of issues that the health at every size community on the whole is fighting and, and working to change to a degree there are bigger fish to fry. But for me the reason that it's important to help kids cultivate a healthy relationship with food is they are going to be the adults that are either perpetuating weight stigma or not one of these days. And, you know, how are we going to shift as a society if we're not, um, It's the same as, you know, being an anti-racist parent, like, we are seeking to change something here. And we have to be active in in doing so rather than just let the world happen to our kids and let them, you know, make their worldviews based on that. Right. (laughs) That's my TED Talk.
1: (laughs) Thanks for coming. Yes.
0: Um, so Heather, I really appreciated you coming on
1: the show to share your story today. Is there, is there anything else you want to share before we go? I don't think so. Just, you know, we're all doing the best we can. So be gentle to yourself, no matter what thing you're facing or challenge you're trying to navigate at the moment.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for coming on the show and take care. Yeah, thanks, Diana. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode with Heather. As I mentioned, I hope you will tune in for the episode coming up in two weeks, which is with Brooke Miller, who has struggled with infertility and miscarriage. And then after that, we are going to be digging into some real anti-diet kids stuff. I am really, really excited for you to hear what I have planned. I am really going to be digging into what I've learned or some of the most common issues with raising anti-diet kids. Um... Sugar, intuitive eating, your own body image, um, your past disordered eating, your present disordered eating, all all that stuff uh, is coming up on the show and I'm excited to share it with you. But um, if you are a person who is in the business of raising anti diet kids or even is slightly interested in starting to raise anti diet kids, I would really love for you to come join me in my Facebook group. The group is called raising anti-diet kids. Uh, But I should mention that if you were in the original fan group for this podcast, uh, which at the time was called the Messy Intersection Podcast Community, you are already in this Facebook group. I didn't want to manage two Facebook groups because I have ADHD. And so I rebranded the original group to be both a place to talk about issues related to raising anti-diet kids, as well as these podcast episodes, which of course are all ultimately going to be about raising anti-diet kids. Um, and honestly, it's been going really well. I have been so encouraged by the support that people are sharing uh, in that Facebook group and their eagerness to learn and the patience that members show to each other um, and also the, the resources that we're sharing there, uh, podcasts, books, peer-reviewed articles, uh, you know, you name it. So it's a really great place if you are trying to unpack uh, some of these things that you have learned about diet culture and you don't want to pass along to your kids, but you're not sure how. And I, I get it. It is messy, <laughs> messy, messy, messy with a capital M. And uh, you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't. We are all in this to learn and grow together. So uh, you can search for Raising Anti-Diet Kids on Facebook, uh, or you can go to facebook.com groups slash anti-diet kids. Uh, or you can just find it linked in this episode's show notes. Uh, so I really hope to see you there. And one more thing you can do if you're enjoying the show is to rate and review this show in your podcast player. As you have probably heard on every other show you listen to, it really helps this show show up in searches so that other people can find it. And just on a personal level, every time I see that there's a new review, it's like it's like a surprise birthday present and it it just makes my day. Um, so if you're in your podcast player right now, why not take 30 seconds and leave a review? So thanks for listening and until next week. Embrace the mess.